When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mohammed Gamaldin, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Faisal Hussein about his new book, Rivers of the Sultan, the Tigris and Euphrates in the Ottoman Empire. Dr. Faisal Hussein is Assistant Professor of History at the Pennsylvania State University. His book, Rivers of the Sultan, published by Oxford University Press in 2021, examined the role of the Tigris and Euphrates in establishment of the Ottoman state institutions along the Ottoman eastern frontier between the 16th and 18th centuries. The book was a finalist for the George Perkins Marsh Prize for the American Society for Environmental History. Hussein serves on the editorial board of Marmor, Turkiyet, Rashtumarle, Durgesi, a Turkology journal based in Turkey, and Global Environment, an environmental history journal based in Italy. Dr. Faisal Hussein, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So glad to have you, uh, uh, Faisal, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, So Faisal, uh, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, that is where you were born, raised, where you went to school, how you became interested in Ottoman environmental history, and whether uh, you had a mentor or scholarly work that drove your research interest. So um, I was born and raised in the Middle East and where I lived for most of my um, uh, teenage years and 20 um, teenage years until I graduated from high school and came to the States as an international student um, like most uh, undergraduate students, I didn't know exactly what my major was going to be. Um, and it took time. Um, I was in a business school. And because for most people, um, it, it seemed like the business school would guarantee um the prospects for finding a job uh, with a business degree was far better 
than other things. And I was not, I didn't feel that I was competent enough to, um, to do medicine or engineering. But luckily, my undergraduate uh, college, which was Penn State University, uh, my alma mater and my current employer, um, they require everybody, like most colleges, um, to take uh, gen ed courses um, in history and international cultures, in American cultures, and also in language. And it was through the, these um, general education courses, especially in history, I was drawn into um, history as a discipline, but it was too late for me when I realized this was my passion, um, which was around my, um, my third year in college. So by then it was really too late for me to switch majors. So I graduated with a business degree but from there, I, I had under my belt enough uh, history classes to, um, to apply for a graduate school and, uh, in history. And my history professors at Penn State, some of whom are now my colleagues, um, they supported my application. Um, uh, and from there, I ended up uh, with a, a PhD in history. Now, and. Uh, this doesn't say much about why I did the, the topic that I ended up with, uh, with this book, or which was based on my dissertation project. And my story is like the story of countless other um, dear friends with whom I've been lucky to do graduate study um, um, during my years in graduate school between 2012 and 2018. Um, 18, um, we are all, and Muhammad, you know this as a PhD in history, we are all, uh, our research and our identity as scholars are really shaped by the time and place where we are trained as scholars or as scientists. And uh, yeah, we historians are no different than the subjects that we study. We are also like the subjects we study, we are the product, um, the products of our time and our place. And the time and place of my education uh, what really uh, primed me to do an environmental history of the Ottoman Empire. So to give you a sense, um, so I did my, I started with my master's program at uh, in 2011. And for those who are familiar with trends in Middle East environmental history, they know that 2011 is was um, is a very consequential uh, year in the uh, in the historiography of environmental history. That's because in that year, when I entered my uh, master's program in 2011, um, that year. Uh, witnessed the publication of two landmark studies on the environmental history of the Ottoman Empire. Um, that was the book by uh, my mentor, uh, Alan Mikhail, um, Nature and Empire in Ottoman Egypt, now chair of the history department at Yale, and also uh, the book by uh, a great scholar, another great scholar at Ohio State University, Sam White, uh, the Climate of Rebellion on the Little Ice Age uh, in the Ottoman Empire. So I entered graduate studies 
um, I started my graduate studies at the cusp of this moment in the historiography. And at the time, if you ask anybody, uh, any Middle East historian, um, or you tell them, like, I'm doing environmental history, they would not really know and understand what environmental history is. It was a novel concept. This is not to say that environmental history was not being done in 2011. Middle East historians and historians of the Islamic world, for a long time, um, they've been studying uh, topics related to the interaction between human, human societies and the natural environment. But it was a very antiquated way for the most part. Um, there are some exceptions, of course. But for the most part, it was a very antiquated way that didn't take much account, uh, didn't take into account um, change that environment. The environments change like human societies, for example, like rivers, for example, and climate. They change over time. And those changes in natural systems have an impact on human societies, just as human societies um, cause and prompt change in those environmental systems. Um, and this is very much unlike other uh, uh, regional studies like North America, Latin America, South Asia, East Asia. Environmental history has a very uh, much older and richer uh, tradition than it does have in Middle East studies. So in many ways, I entered into, uh, I started my uh, master's program at the cusp of this moment in the historiography uh, that was ushered in by the work, the remarkable work, and also the mentorship of Alan Mikhail um, and Sam White, and that started uh, in 2011. So in many ways, if I started my graduate studies maybe in the 1980s, I would have written an entirely different dissertation than the one I've written because, uh, and what I wrote has a lot to do with the enthusiasm that was, uh, that was very noticeable and could be felt uh, uh, in many universities, uh, not only in North America, but also internationally, um, uh, about the new discipline of environmental history and the countless opportunities that this new uh, methodology in history uh, offered us young historians to explore new topics, ask new questions, and also to revisit, to revisit um, old questions and um, answer them uh, with, you, with new insights and uh, with new uh, sources. So that's about the, the timing of my graduate education and how it impacted the dissertation I ended up with and the book I ended up with. In terms of uh, place, also place plays an important part in um, in the kind of scholars we become or and also the kind of human beings uh, we become we are products of our uh, place as well and my place had a lot to do uh, explains a lot uh, why I ended up uh, writing an environmental history of the Ottoman Empire so I started my uh, graduate education at Yale University that's where I did um, uh, a terminal degree um, in history, a master's degree. Um, and when I arrived, I had to meet, um, I didn't have to meet, I reached out to this uh, junior faculty member who about whom everybody was talking, uh, this uh, remarkable person, uh, Alan Mikhail. I reached out to him because he was one of only two Middle East historians 
uh, in the history department of Yale. And I wanted to introduce myself and to tell him um, what I was thinking my dissertation would be and to ask for his advice. And he was extremely responsive from the first day I emailed him and um, he welcomed me and offered all his advice and recommendations and to have a meaningful conversation with him. I uh, voluntarily bought his book and read it and I was inspired. It was uh, by the breadth and the depth of the research and also by the beauty uh, of his writing. It was highly enjoyable, unlike so many other monographs, including mine, that, that come out of a dissertation project, which tend to be very dense and not very easy to get through. And this applies also to my book. Uh, but that was totally different in Alan's book. It was highly enjoyable, even for someone who knew very little about the Ottoman Empire and who knew very little about um, environmental history. Um, so, yeah, so I was inspired by him. And I, I ended up with taking uh, my first graduate seminar in, in Ottoman history uh, with him. Uh, and in that seminar, we read the classics on the Ottoman Empire. And also, we, we, Alan did something very unusual uh, uh, compared to the other Ottoman seminars that I'm familiar with and I've, I've taken as a graduate student and that he dedicated time for us to read uh, primary sources written in Ottoman Turkish. And he said, if you have any documents in Ottoman Turkish, uh, email them to me and, and I will circulate that document among everybody so that biweekly um, we will um, meet earlier uh, to read that document together. And I thought that was really amazing. And I wish uh, more seminars on Ottoman history would do that. Um, so I took that with him on the Ottoman Empire, uh, the graduate seminar. And also I took as my first seminar in environmental history, which was very uh, centered on North America with uh, a prominent environmental historian at Yale. Um, his name is Paul Sabin. And he was also a wonderful uh, very accomplished um, historian uh, of the environment um, in North America. And um, even though it was a North American seminar, he f made me feel, f feel welcomed. And I really enjoyed uh, learning the literature, uh, the, um, the North American literature, environmental history. And I'm in no position to offer anyone an advice, but if a graduate student or an undergraduate student tells me that they're really interested um, in environmental history. What do you recommend me? What books do you recommend me to read? Normally, me and so many others, I think, we would uh, direct them first to the North American literature on environmental history because that's where environmental history has its deepest roots. And this is where the literature is most developed. Um, and I'm lucky that I took my uh, first environmental history seminar that was regionally focused on North America. So from there, um, after taking the seminar with environmental history seminar with Paul Sabin, taking um, an Ottoman history seminar with Alan, Alan really opened my doors to, um, to proceed with my ideas. And I said, Alan, uh, I love your work. 
I really want to do something kind of similar to what you did um, uh, on early modern Ottoman management of water resources, river, river resources in the Nile Valley. How about I do something similar um, on the, the other uh, large river system in West Asia, and that was the Tigris and Euphrates. I had no idea if this was possible, honestly. Like, can you write a dissertation um, entirely devoted to the Ottoman management of the Tigris and Euphrates um, anytime, let alone before, before the 19th century? I mean, no one knew. Uh, most people didn't know much about what's in there that has to do with the Tigris and Euphrates. Um, but Alan gave me uh, all his support and he wrote me the recommendation letters and he introduced me to my dissertation advisor uh, who accepted my uh, PhD grad application. And that was uh, a renowned and very important and very wonderful um, scholar of environmental history and world history, uh, John McNeil uh, at Georgetown. And I, honestly, I was very skeptical that he would accept my application because I did something very different from his own research agenda. Uh, his focus had been when I reached out to him and sub submitted my application. Um, it was, um, he was working on the Caribbean and also he was working on the Mediterranean Sea. But I think the reason he accepted my application and I don't know if he would agree with that, um, people can ask him today. I think he accepted my application because he knew the least about what happened to the Tigris and Euphrates, um, maybe since the Mongol conquests, because he wrote a bit about the Tigris and Euphrates before the Mongol conquests in his world history textbooks. Maybe So maybe I assume that he knew the least about the Tigris and Euphrates after the Mongols, and he wanted to learn more about it, and he saw me as uh, the the person to do it. Um, and yeah, so my career, in short, to summarize to everybody, uh, I am like so many others, and most of us in graduate schools, um, we are the product of our time and place, the time when we enter uh, into graduate school and the place where we are trained as historians and scientists. And both of them came together, my entry into graduate school in 2011, and also my start, uh, starting graduate school at Yale, which had Alan Mikhail and had a vibrant uh, cohort of faculty and graduate students working on environmental history. Um, so Yale was really the springboard for me to continue my education in Georgetown. Uh, and from there, uh, I ended up writing the dissertation that became the book we're talking about today. Very nice. Uh, and... It I think you you highlight an important point about you know the the importance of being in the right place at the right time uh, and you know having the uh, the moment uh, uh, or being in the in the right moment uh, for uh, your research uh, those things can really uh, change the trajectory of your your career. Uh, and like so many of us in Middle Eastern environmental history, you know, we've been influenced by Alan uh, Mikhail and Sam White and uh, and John uh, McNeil. So it's it's 
it's very fortuitous for you to have uh, ended up in, in those uh, circles and to, and it really shows through your, through your text. Um, I, so let's jump into the book. And uh, first, Faisal, I was hoping uh, that you could paint a picture for our listeners about the natural environment, populations, and urban settlement that make up the riverine uh uh, landscape for your case study in the Tigris and Euphrates Valley. All right. So for those unfamiliar with the Tigris-Euphrates Basin, so the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are, so both together, they comprise a single river, riverine system. And they are considered to be the largest river system west of the Indus River in India. So it's very important in the context of most societies that live west of India. Together, the Tigris and Euphrates are called normally twin rivers. And that's because, in some ways, because they both emerge from the same source. And that source is the Taurus Mountains. And most rivers, all rivers, emerge in a mountainous zone. And the Tigris and Euphrates are no different. Both of them emerge from the same source. And that's the Taurus mountain system, which is located in southeastern Turkey today. And also, both of them, the Tigris and Euphrates, so from there, they flow downstream to the south in the southeasterly direction through southeastern Turkey, through uh, Syria, and then down to Iraq. And from Iraq, both the Tigris and Euphrates uh, drain into the Persian Gulf. Now, in terms of settlement, um, the Tigris and Euphrates are home to one of the oldest centers for the domestication of crops and plants. Mostly at the beginning, it was at the foothills of the Taurus and Zagros Mountains. Uh, but later, um, colonizers or uh, settlers would descend from those the foothills of the mountains down to what is now considered to be Iraq um, or Southern Iraq. And with that immigration, which happened around the second of the, uh, sec uh, around the middle of the seventh millennium BC, they brought with them the plants and animals they domesticated in the mountainous foothills. And they brought it with them to the alluvial plains of the Tigris and Euphrates to grow the crops and to raise their animals using the waters of the Tigris and Euphrates. Now, so um, the, the history of human settlement and human, um, uh, human settlement and the ag agrarian civilization that exists in the region is very old. And what is unique about it is that the, the, the length of the historical record that you get from this region, which is in some ways comparable to the length of the historical record that you find in the Nile Valley in Egypt. So like the Nile Valley, the Tigris and Euphrates are extremely important for the study of how human societies in general interacted with river systems, how they shaped river systems, and how river systems shaped them in return over the long term. Because luckily, like Egypt, the Tigris and Euphrates Valley, or the alluvial plain, what is called uh, the first cities and um, civilizations, the first civilization was Sumerian civilization, 
This is where the earliest forms of writing appeared. So people can study the interaction between water and human societies in the long term by relying not only on archaeological evidence, which is all what archaeologists have in other river valleys, but also in the Tigris and Euphrates Valley, like the Nile Valley, they can, they can combine their archaeological data with written evidence that date back from uh, the fourth millennium BC. Uh, that makes uh, the study of um, uh, ancient irrigation systems and the study of uh, uh, human river interactions over the long term far richer in this river valley than uh, other places. So my point is that uh, the history of the Tigris and Euphrates are important, not only uh, for the purpose of the region itself, but also for a global comparative perspective as well. Now, what is different in the Tigris-Euphrates system, uh, unlike Egypt, is that it went through a period of boom and bust. So Egypt's irrigation civilization is very continuous. And it's basically, it starts from early on, um, maybe around the fourth millennium BC, up to the 20th century. And of course, there were uh, changes in the political structure and the organization of society, but more or less, the large contours of the irrigation um, system that existed very much remained the same because it was highly effective and highly sustainable and worked very well uh, up to the 20th century uh, with the construction of the Aswan Dam, uh, about which you know much better than I do. The main difference between the Nile Valley and the Tigris and Euphrates Valley is that the irrigation civilization came to a halt and uh, started to deteriorate after about 6,000 years. Um, and that happened around the, um, the, the ninth century uh, when things started to, to deteriorate. Um, and uh, the Tigris and Euphrates Valley loses its prominence as a center or a powerhouse for irrigation agriculture at least, and will become overshadowed by the Nile Valley and, and other places. Now to, now, to situate the region in the context until the arrival of the Ottomans, who are the major players in my book. So after the ninth century, we see the rise and fall of many different dynasties uh, and political formations, but most of those political formations would not last for too long to change the situation of the region in any durable or meaningful way. Uh, so you see the, the rise of the Mongols and the rise of different uh, 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 Turkmen uh, tribal confederations. Um, but as I said, they would be very short-lived uh, in a way that uh, hindered any attempt to radically tr transform or even maybe say restore uh, the irrigation infrastructure that existed uh, uh, up to the ninth century of the common era. But that period of political disintegration and instability would finally come to an end in the early decades of the 16th century. And that's when uh, uh, Sultan Selim I and Suleiman I would lead Ottoman armies to conquer different pro uh, provinces, um, uh, the Middle East, the, the Eastern part of the Middle East region 
uh, east of the Euphrates, um, and they would place the reins of the entire Tigris and Euphrates system uh, in the hands of one central government that was based in Istanbul. So at, in the early decades of the 16th century, you see something really rare and very unusual didn't happen much throughout history, which is the political unification of the entire river basin of the Tigris and Euphrates from mountain to ocean. And that, in my book, this has normally in the classical surveys of Ottoman history, that has been overlooked. Um, so what, um, whether this had an impact on the Ottoman Empire and whether the Ottoman Empire had an impact on the river system after its unification, now that one central government or one government and political structure controls this entire river system, did it have any historical significance? Uh, did it have any impact uh, on people or the state? And did this allow people to have to use the river resources in ways that hadn't been uh, used before? And that's really those are really the questions that the my book seeks to uh, uh, answer and make the case for. So it makes the case that. Uh, this is an important moment in the history of the Ottoman Empire, but also in the history of the river system. Uh, this is a rare moment when we see both rivers in their entirety, more or less, uh, controlled by one uh, under one imperial roof. And throughout the book, I try to see what that meant for the Ottoman state and what that meant for the river system itself. Fascinating. And uh, thank you for that, because you, you touched on a number of points that I'm going to ask you about in a, a few minutes. Uh, so it's a good uh, segue to our next question. Your research uses a unique methodology to explore the natural environment. And amongst a diverse set of actors, migratory pastoralists and cultivators who lived in alluvial plains of the 16th, 17th, 18th century Ottoman Iraq. Could you expand on the use uh, of the Ottoman administrative and bureaucratic records found in the Ottoman archives and how they helped to illustrate this imperial framework of Ottoman hydrolo hydrology systems? So this is uh, a very important question. And this is a question I had uh, when I thought maybe this is a topic I wanted to research. Uh, when I said that and made the decision, and I wrote my um, uh, personal statement for graduate school that I want to write a history of the Tigris and Euphrates um, in the Ottoman period, I had no idea if there were the documents, uh, if there, they were there to write the book that I was proposing or the, the dissertation I was proposing. Luckily, Turkey and um, especially Istanbul is in many ways an archival paradise, not only um, uh, to study the history of Turkey itself, but also to study the history of the entire Islamic world from Southeast Asia all the way um, to uh, Eastern Europe. And this has a lot to do with the archival practices and the stability of the political formation that existed in the Ottoman Empire. So during my first uh, archival, um, not first, but um, several archival trips that I've, I've done to the um, uh, to Turkey, and most of my research took place in the same location where most Ottoman historians 
um, conduct the research in the uh, Ottoman archive, uh, the, uh, which is now part of the archives of the uh, presidency of uh, of uh, the the Turkish Republic's uh, president. Um, so I I did most of my research there, and I was surprised by how much there was available that dealing with the history of the Tigris and Euphrates in many different ways. And so in terms of themes, so let me talk about the themes that first appeared in those documents, and then I will talk about the exact uh, documents. So there were many references to the to a navy that the Ottomans had maintained on the Tigris and Euphrates that I had no idea that it existed. And one of my chapters, um, chapter two, tells the story of that navy, uh, the naval fleet of the Ottoman Empire on the Tigris and Euphrates. There are so many references about the use of the Tigris and Euphrates uh, by Ottoman officials for transportation pr purposes and special to deliver different commodities like grains, weapons, timber, and other things. And also there are many, uh, of course, references to the use of the Tigris and Euphrates on irrigation, but also about mobile pastoralism and, and the exploitation of the wetlands. Now, in terms of the documents, well, there are different... Uh, so um, the Ottoman archive is, is interesting in that it has diff uh, two different ways of organizing the documents. So the earlier classification efforts um, did not follow the provenance method. And the provenance method that is professionally applied in most archives today is to organize documents and trace them back to the office that issued those documents, okay? Only later, the, the system of provenance was introduced to the Ottoman archive. Um, but early on, there were, there were different ways of organizing the document. There, there were efforts to organize documents by themes, like by uh, uh, foreign affairs, by interior affairs, by maritime affairs, and so on and so forth. And also, so by, themat, uh, by, by themes. Some other documents are classified by uh, time period. So some, uh, there are some classifications that are, are arranged by the reign of the Sultan. So each Sultan, um, they would group all the documents that came out during the reign of that Sultan. They put them together in one classification. So it's a hybrid classification system, but luckily right now, most of the archival uh, record that is located in the Ottoman archive really um, organized by the modern method followed by many archives around the world, which is the provenance method. Out of all those documents and issued by very different uh, offices in the Ottoman bureaucracy, so I use many of them, and which office, uh, the documents of which office you want to use really depends on the questions you're asking yourself. So for example, if you are interested in um, studying the Ottoman Navy on the Tigris and Euphrates, there was a whole uh, 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 bureaucracy dealing with the naval affairs in the um, Ottoman uh, Empire, which is called the Tirsanai Amira. And that was based um, by the 16th century um, in Istanbul on the Golden Horn near Galata. Um, other, so... So, if you're interested in international affairs, of course, you ask, uh, you look at um, the documents organized by uh, 
saying that those are the documents related to international affairs. But um, there, there is one set of documents that is probably without which I could not have written this book. And this is um, the cadastral surveys of the Ottoman Empire that uh, were compiled mostly from the between the 15th and uh, 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 the early 17th centuries. So for those for those who are not familiar with what the Ottoman cadastral surveys are, so the Ottoman cadastral surveys, you can compare them for the most part to the uh, Doomsday Book that many uh, students of American history and British history uh, uh, they're familiar with. So they're, um, every time the Ottoman authorities conquered a new territory, they would dispatch agents to that territory to compile a comprehensive record of that territory's population and also revenue sources. And the point was to get a sense of how much tax the empire would be able to collect on an annual basis from that uh, region. Now, um, populations change over time. And because of that, with every major change in the provinces, uh, demographic makeup and economic made, makeup, uh, Ottoman authorities were supposed, but they did not always compile an updated new survey of that region. And for me, this was the most important uh, source, especially to write my chapters and study and under, understand the patterns that existed related to the interaction of people with irrigation agriculture and also how people relied on the rivers to graze their livestock, and also how people relied on the the rivers to to exploit the wetlands that were watered by the Tigris and Euphrates. Now, I am not the first person to appreciate the significance of this set of documents. Countless others from the early 20th century have been using this resource to study other provinces. But for some reason that I don't really understand, uh, or I have some theories to explain it, um, the cadastral surveys of the Ottoman uh, 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 of the Ottoman Empire, which one of the most prominent scholars of uh, economic historians of the Ottoman Empire, Omar Lutfi Barkan, once called the cadastral surveys as if uh, to paraphrase him, the most precious. Uh, uh, source in the Ottoman archive. This is how he called them. And maybe you would say, well, he's biased. He's an economic historian. Naturally, he would call it this way. Um, but I, uh, for, for the most part, I agree with him. Uh, it is the most precious resource in the Ottoman archive because of the depth of the detail that it provides. And you can use all these data, demographic data and economic data, and all the law codes that you can also find in many of those sources to answer all kinds of questions, like about the balance between males and females, maybe, um, to study the balance between married and, and, and married, um, and also to study the evolution of settlements and um, uh, economic trends over time. Yeah, but for some reason, since maybe the 1990s, um, and I think it has a lot to do with the rise of the cultural trend in Middle East, uh, um, in Middle East studies, which is not so new. Um, there is much more 
um, there is much more that can be done that is actually being done uh, using those uh, resources. But I must say, um, there are many people who don't have uh, questions, research questions that deal with economic trends or demographic trends, and this is totally fine. So if you are a cultural historian of the Ottoman Empire and more interested in gender dynamics, for example, or intellectual trends, um, the cadastral surveys will have... Um, will be of much less utility to the researcher than uh, those uh, sources uh, can be for um, uh, for um, can be for economic historians. Uh, the last thing I will say is that what I try to suggest in the book is that um, those so the cadastral surveys have been central to Ottoman economic history, especially in the 16th. Um, in the 16th century. What I'm trying to do is that um, why not we use those cadastral surveys to write environmental histories of the Ottoman Empire? And there is a major difference because for economic historians, what really they normally pay attention to is the, um, is the agricultural resources that had the highest um, um, uh, monetary value per uh, weight unit. So there is uh, undue emphasis on wheat, the cultivation of wheat, barley, um, rice, because they had a higher monetary value in the eyes of Ottoman authority, and they were emphasized in the cadastral surveys. There has been less, much far less emphasis on other natural resources that were not valued as much as wheat and barley, and what I tried to uh, argue in the book is that how about we pay attention to those uh, resources um, as well, uh, because even though in the eyes of the Ottoman uh, state, which was an agrarian state, and placed greater monetary um, value on those on uh, on resources like wheat and barley, why not pay attention also and appreciate other resources, for example, um, like the, the water buffalo, which did not water buffalo normally um, generated far less tax for the Ottoman state than than a peasant who called it. so the, the herder of water buffalo generated far much far less tax to the Ottoman authorities than um, the cultivator of wheat and barley and also other resources and I devote an entire chapter to the exploitation of uh, pastures or grasslands and those are totally escape uh, the attention of economic historians as well, because grasslands, in many ways, for the most part, they were not, um, uh, no one could tax uh, 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 grasslands in the same way they could tax um, arable lands like lands uh, of wheat and barley. And those are just a few examples of how uh, an environmental approach to use the cadastral surveys could be different. And it's not tied um, it's uh, it appreciates natural resources not based on their monetary value, but um, based on the role they played in the lives of people, and how um, and to illuminate and answer all those questions about the broader questions about the interaction of people with the natural environment. Brilliant! Uh, I love the the use of the cadastral surveys and uh, how you. Uh, you've uh, trained, you've been able to extract from it uh, 
you know, stories about the uh, environment of the Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, and, and we'll see that uh, further on in our discussion. Um, next, you write in your introduction that you're writing the Tigris and Euphrates as a coherent unit. Could you illustrate for our listeners why it wasn't written as such before and how your study shows Ottoman coherency across the river system? Yeah, so um, we are in many ways not only products of our time and products of our place, but also products of the archives that we use. And because the Ottoman archive and documents in many ways are organized by provinces, many of the research output that we produce is molded uh, molded along provincial lines. So, for example, the cadastral surveys I mentioned, they are always, um, they are compiled along a provincial and district lines. So you see the cadastral survey of Egypt, the cadastral survey of Mosul, the cadastral survey of Aleppo, of uh, um, uh, of Damascus and other places. And because of that, and also many of the imperial correspondence um, also it goes back and forth between Istanbul and also to the professional centers, the centers of the province, like the, the governor um, of Malatya, the governor of Malash, Marash, and the governor of Aintab. So even the imperial correspondence is really organized along provincial lines. It is the communication happens uh, with those um, Ottoman authorities in those uh, provincial centers. Um, and for those reasons, among others, um, you see studies that are confined within, uh, follow the, uh, the provincial lines that the Ottoman administration established, which is good. I'm not saying that this is a bad way of doing research. Far from it. I couldn't have written my book had it not been for those provincial studies. They're extremely important. And they taught us things that we didn't know much before. And especially, they taught us a great deal about how the Ottoman Empire in one place behaved uh, and evolved very differently from one province to another. And this is a very important thing. Instead of treating the Ottoman state as just this monolithic that behaves and imposes its will um, regardless of geography and local setting. What I tried to... So I, I feel the the Tigris and Euphrates have been dissected and dismembered uh, and through studies um, of provincial centers, uh, partly because of that reason, is that the archive um, is organized, in many ways the documents are organized along provincial lines and district lines. Um, and also, in many ways, uh, um, I mean, it's more manageable and wieldy to write... Um, um, to write a story that is more geographically um, uh, specific, well-defined, that the Ottoman state has defined it for you, um, and to conduct this research. So it's much safer. For me, I tried to do something different, um, is to take uh, uh, to take the entire Tigris-Euphrates Basin as a unit of analysis. In part, I was encouraged in my graduate education uh, by reading uh, Fernand Bordel, who wrote an entire book, a famous one, 
uh, on the Mediterranean, uh, the history of the Mediterranean. And I was, I thought to myself, if you can write a history of the Mediterranean Sea at, as a whole, why not write a history of the uh, Tigris and Euphrates reverse, which are more, much smaller and much more uh, manageable. And of course, you don't have to, if you take the Tigris and Euphrates, um, one critique is to say, well, that's a lot of ground to cover. Well, you don't have to cover every square mile in the Tigris Euphrates Basin uh, to write a history of it. Just like Fernand Burdell, he didn't cover every square mile in the Mediterranean Basin to write his, his history. What he did uh, is exactly what I tried to do, is to focus on the themes and the settlements and the populations that played the most prominent role and was were most relevant in the period that I was looking at between the 16th and 18th centuries. Um, and this is what I tried to do. And I must say, um, on this point, is that, again, I am not different here. And the net I cast to, uh, to determine my uh, geographical framework, um, it didn't follow political lines. It really followed geographical lines um, that are visible on the landscape. Um, I was not only inspired by Fernand Burdell, but countless of other environmental historians, because if you're doing a cultural history or an environmental, uh, if you're doing like a political history, especially, it makes sense to take the province as a, uh, as a framework or to take the nation state as a framework because you're doing a political history, which is administered by one administration and which has a specific archive that you can exploit. But, um, and this is the argument by my uh, mentor, John McNeil. He says, for environmental history, the political divisions of a space um, are the least helpful and the, the, the least uh, makes the least sense uh, if you are writing environmental history. And this is because environmental trends normally unfold without regard to political borders. So if you want to, uh, for the, from the perspective of the Tigris and Euphrates, if you want to write their history, so what, what sense does it make the borderland between the province of Diyarbakir and the province of uh, Mosul. It doesn't make any sense. Without, regardless of the line that you draw in your imagination or on the land, the rivers, the, uh, the Tigris River, will still flow from uh, Diyarbakir and Mosul, and it will be more or less the same river. It will not dramatically change because it's crossed this uh, uh, provincial line. And the same, the same thing can be said about the Tigris and Euphrates today between Turkey and Syria and Iraq. It's the same river. And the same thing can be uh, said about the river that you are more familiar with, uh, the Nile River. Um, so what I tried to do is really like inspired by a moment that I had in graduate study, which is um, reading the, um, uh, Fernand Burdell's book, but also by countless other scholars in my field who made the case that if you want to write the environmental history, um, think beyond those pol the political divisions of a space and think about how about you write uh, and think about how to uh, cast your net along maybe geographical lines and lines that make ecological and environmental sense. And for me, I thought you really cannot study the history of the Tigris River by looking at what province, like looking at the province at Diyarbakir only, because Diyarbakir was part of this larger, broader 
communication network that in many ways was forged by river flow and the Tigris and Euphrates River. Um, and countless other, this is the, exactly the, the way that count, countless other historians, <clears throat> countless other uh, historians of river systems um, uh, follow. They try to write the history of the, of the river they're interested in from mountain uh, to ocean, whether you, that's the Mississippi River, the Danube River, uh, the Don River, uh, and elsewhere. So in many ways, what I did really was made possible by the by the example that was set to me by uh, uh, many other scholars in the past and the present. Very interesting. And it comes across in your text uh, very well, the uh, the type of influences and inspiration you have in, in, in formulating your, your methodology here. Uh, and I think it's a very strong one. Uh, and you don't ignore the political, though, uh, and it still uh, becomes it's still an important part of the the story. Um, so my next question uh, kind of connects to this, and you pretty clearly argue that the Ottoman Empire was able, with ups and downs, of course, to use the rivers to defend their eastern borders and expand Ottoman power into the Shat al-Arab. Could you speak about how this came about specifically? I was fascinated by the establishment of shipyards along uh, the river. Yeah, and this is um, um, something that the region had not seen until the arrival of the Ottomans. So watercraft on the Tigris and Euphrates for a long time was very basic and based on local material uh, materials that people had uh, at their disposal, like um, uh, uh, reeds, and uh, palm leaves and animal skins and basic timber, like mulberry timber. Um, you never see heavy uh, watercraft like galleys and galleots and frigates um, that you, you see on the Mediterranean Sea until the arrival of the Ottomans in the 16th century. And this is a major turning point in the history um, of uh, uh, watercraft um, and material culture when it comes to much watercraft, um, thanks largely to the Ottoman state that saw, found it like they had a vested interest to develop um, the, uh, the watercraft in the region to fulfill its needs, uh, mostly security needs um, to protect its interests um, in the lower river valley, which bordered different rivals to the Ottoman state. So on one on the east, you have the Safavid Empire in Iran, uh, the, um, the, the Ottoman Empire's arch rival in the east. In the 16th century, also, you have the, uh, the Portuguese in the Persian Gulf, uh, for which the Ottoman state had to make preparations. And the Tigris and Euphrates proved very important to deliver material uh, necessary to fend off the Portuguese threat. Um, and also you have the Arab tribes um, within Iraq and also coming from Syria um, and Arabia that every now and then challenged the hegemony of the Ottoman state and the Ottoman state had to deal with them. And the Ottoman Navy played a prominent and important, important role in, um, in fighting them. So the rivers, 
were uh, very critical um, for um, uh, uh, for the for the projection of Ottoman power in the on the Ottoman frontier. So, and the the, the maritime uh, the naval facilities that the Ottoman state built, mostly based in Birajik in southeastern Turkey and in Basra in southern Iraq, were bar- part of a broader um, uh, uh, grant strategy. Um, how do you protect um, this vulnerable borderland region, roughly what is now Iraq? How do you protect it from so? It's so far away and surrounded by so many an- enemies, and who really wanted this region, especially for the Safavids, they really wanted to take uh, Iraq because of their, uh, of its um, mostly its um, cultural significance, um, not only for the Ottomans but, but for the Safavids. So what do you do? Like you're far away in Istanbul, and um, how do you protect this vulnerable region, which is much closer to Iran and the uh, the imperial center in Iran, whether it's Qazvin uh, or Tabriz or uh, or Isfahan? All of those were much closer to Iraq than Istanbul itself, which was much further away. So, what do you do about that? So, what you see throughout the 16th and 17th century, a consistent policy of uh, providing Ottoman garrisons who were that were based in uh, based in Iraq with the most important resources they needed to maintain um, an Ottoman military edge in this part of the world, and those I I focus on three of those resources in my book. So the role of the Tigris and Euphrates in delivering uh, grain from the north to the south through the Tigris and Euphrates. Um, and that the grain was extremely important. And you see constant, I provide the table at the end of my book of the documented, only the documented cases we have of river transport of, of grain. It was extremely important, largely because it was only with enough um, supply of grain that the Ottoman state could um, sustain and feed uh, military gar- garrisons large enough to um, um, to fend off um, frontier challenges to Ottoman rule. So that's one resource uh, that was which whose delivery was made possible and easier and cheaper through river transport. Also, another resource I talk about is the transport um, of uh, weapons and artillery, uh, which were heavy and were much uh, more convenient to transport uh, by, uh, by watercraft. And you see constant cases of the transport of weaponry um, from the north, uh, upstream, downstream, um, to, uh, to Ottoman troops. And of course, the Ottomans needed that because you wanted your army protecting your interests to be equipped with the most up-to-date and advanced weaponry at the time to uh, maintain your military edge. And the last thing I focus on is the transport of timber uh, from the north to the south, um, with which the Ottoman state could build uh, more uh, ships uh, um, to deal with the Portuguese and also to act as a police, uh, as a naval police, to maintain order and collect taxes. If you notice something about the three resources I mentioned, uh, grain, um, Timber, uh, timber, and also weaponry, which is mostly made by metals. They're all 
resources that were totally lacking or for the most part, very difficult to find and expensive in Iraq. So Iraq itself could not produce those things. They they had to come from elsewhere. Um, Iraq has had a chronic shortage of grain since the collapse of irrigation systems in the ninth, in the ninth century. Also, Iraq had a like Egypt was very poor when it comes to uh, timber resources. And also, Iraq happens to have very very few. Uh, dep- uh, metal deposits from which people could extract metals and construct all the things they needed to uh, to manufacture those weapons. So the Ottoman state uh, came in and through uh, river flow in the Tigris and Euphrates was able to uh, rebalance the resources of the eastern frontier and to uh, uh, dispatch all the resources uh, timber, metal, and grain that were in surplus in eastern Anatolia uh, to areas that were uh, in shortage, uh, like Iraq. And it was through this pattern and this grand strategy of providing all these resources that were in surplus in the north and in shortage downstream that the Ottoman state was able to build a political and military presence that was powerful enough to maintain Ottoman um, hegemony in this part of its empire so many miles, if I remember the last time I checked, maybe 1800 miles uh, around this number um, to maintain Ottoman hegemony in this part of the of the empire for roughly 400, 400 years and this is one of the main reasons I say well, the Tigris and Euphrates really matter um, um, and unfortunately this is not reflected in the literature and most of the uh, surveys of Ottoman history, uh, you rarely see uh, mention um, of what role, if any, the Tigris and Euphrates played in um, in Ottoman history. And this is very much unlike the Nile River, for example, which receives much more attention normally in the literature. Maybe because the, the, uh, there are the Alan Mikhail's of the world who are able to write um, uh, 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 uh more uh, in-depth books uh, on the River Valley, but my hope is that my book will make will be a modest step to give more visibility to this uh, river system on the Ottoman eastern frontier. Thank you for that, uh, and uh, I do think that there is a over abundance of work uh, centered on Egyptian history under the Ottoman rule. Uh, and something that I think is you're starting to see more work outside of uh, uh, the uh, Nile Valley uh, and uh, bringing in other uh, provinces uh, uh, that are you know outside of the the so-called uh, center or core uh, of the empire, but also of uh, the historiography. Uh, so, and I think your book fits really into that mold. Uh, if I move on to the next question, uh, and, and I think this connects to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, what you uh, brought up here, uh, that and this is in beautiful prose for all those who read the text. Um, part two uh, of your book highlights three parts of the alluvial environments: arable lands, grasslands, and wetlands. Yeah, what I found most interesting, and I take it you did too is the ways in which landscapes were, uh, which were wet one part of the year could then dry up and become pastures at another part of the water cycle. 
further, you highlight how through reclamation slash drainage and inundation, wetlands could also become arable, even at the margins. So how did the Ottoman Empire use these environmental nuances to extract taxes and crops to feed their cities and troops? It depends on the um, on the uh, usage of the river you're looking into. So, um, and this is a major point I want to make in my book is that the Targus and Euphrates are, of course, important for one, not only for one subsistence uh, strategy, which is irrigation agriculture. Um, most people normally associate rivers with irrigation agriculture. That's why it is important. But a major point I try to make in the in the book is to say, well, rivers are no less important to support other ways to produce food. And those other ways include uh, uh, livestock grazing. So um, this is another source of food, livestock. And also another uh, way of producing food is to exploit wetland systems um, uh, through the cultivation of rice and also to raise um, uh, water buffalo and both rice and water buffalo were very fond generally to wetland environments. And so regardless of the um, uh, um, ecological zone you're looking at, so in, in many ways, so what I say is that the Tigris and Euphrates uh, through their annual flood uh, and the, depo- the, depo- the annual flood and the deposition of sediment, they created different ecosystems in the region. And this is unlike um, what normally people portray um, the the region and also Egypt. For, for famously, um, they say, well, Egypt is a desert crossed by a river. And the same thing is said about uh, Iraq. Iraq is a desert crossed by rivers. In many ways, that's true. But if you look closer, um, well, you see many differences. It's not just a desert. Well, there are deserts and also there are grasslands and there are wetlands. And um, those, the differences between those uh, ecosystems, they're really arranged by the annual movement and the annual flood of the Tigris and Euphrates that create those differences. Because the Tigris and Euphrates have more, have more freedom to move around and to flood in southern Iraq than in the north. And as a result, those annual floods create um, what normally people call um, a mosaic. Uh, ecological mosaic that made of different uh, ecosystems rather than just a desert. Now, so if you're asking about um, how the Ottoman state dealt with that situation, it really depends on the ecological zone you're looking at. So for example, um, I have an entire chapter, chapter four, that deals with the Ottoman management um, of uh, grasslands. So what's the policy? So you have grasslands, and there are so many shepherds um, that are actively year-round exploiting those um, uh, 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 grass and pasture to raise their livestock. So what do you do about that? Um, well, um, one thing I one of my biggest finds in in the book that I was totally surprised is the Ottoman policy of organizing shepherds into what can be called herding, and I call in the book herding associations. Um, um, you appoint a leader on that herding association, which is made up of smaller uh, groups. Each group has its own leader. 
and you appoint a judge on them and with all of their names are registered in the cadastral surveys and so the chain of command uh, and the reporting procedures are clear enough to make it easy to um, to have a sense of how many you have, how many shepherds you have, how many sheep you have, and how much tax you can collect from them every single year. And this is one of the way you can calculate and make a guess roughly how much sheep existed um, in the region uh, in the 16th century and how many shepherds, um, at least those that the Ottoman state were able to re record. So this is one policy. Uh, one policy to exploit the grasslands that I discuss in the book is what I call social aggregation. And I borrow this term from uh, James Scott in his book, Seeing Like a State. One policy for the Ottoman, for any state to deal with this um, highly mobile and tribal um, uh, uh, social structure, which is really difficult to uh, trace and track down and to tax because it's not fixed in one place like a village. So how do you do? Uh, how do you deal with that? And how do you, um, yeah? And how do you count them on an annual basis? Well, one method that the Ottoman state did, which is not different from other methods, from similar methods that were pursued by other Mediterranean powers with rich pastoral, mobile pastoral traditions like Spain and Italy, uh, and the Mediterranean. Um, the Ottoman state, just like them, just like Spain and just like Italy, they pursued a policy that can be called social aggregation, which is to organize those small uh, and uh, mobile and independent um, uh, mobile groups into larger uh, political uh, and social formations that is easier to track down with a clear hierarchy and clear reporting procedures, clear obligations, and clear uh, privileges because you, you cannot tell uh, this independent uh, a portion of society um, I want you to behave in this way and to organize yourself in this way without giving in some some privileges uh, that make uh, the deal more palliable to them and for the Ottoman state for all those returns um, and cooperation with the Ottoman state the Ottoman state mostly uh, granted three very important privileges that mattered a great deal to any shepherd at the time. One of it is to grant free, freedom of movement between different provinces. So, um, and this is essential to any uh, one pursuing a mobile form of life. Um, you really want to move around between the best pastures that you can find throughout the year to, fa uh, to fatten your sheep. And uh, by agreeing to the terms of the deal struck with the Ottoman state, well, those state-sanctioned shepherd groups, they could move beyond, uh, between uh, different provinces um, uh, freely uh, with the blessing of the Ottoman state without harassment and without uh, questions about uh, uh, taxation or anything. So that was one benefit. Another benefit is to promise uh, royal protection. Well, you say, well, if you are sh shepherding your uh, livestock within uh, those state-sanctioned uh, herding associations, well, guess what? If you are attacked by any um, outlaws, 
the Ottoman army will come to your rescue and they will extract um, uh, 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 revenge uh, for any injustice inflicted on you by those uh, outlaw groups. So that's another benefit. And the last benefit is to promise royal justice. So um, some of the herding associations, we have explicit evidence that those herding associations moved around along with a judge, an ultimate judge that moved with them to answer their questions, um, to, um, to receive complaints and communicate all their grievances if they faced any uh, injustice from Ottoman authorities. And that judge would communicate those messages um, uh, to Istanbul. So those were uh, three major benefits that shepherds uh, enjoyed in return for their uh, uh, for the agreement to um, to operate under under the tutelage or under the uh, the framework that the Ottoman state uh, uh, provided, and the point was just to take the advantage to exploit the grasslands that were watered annually by. Uh, the Tigris and Euphrates. The other ecological zone is wetlands, and the system more or less is um, um, uh, is the same. And irrigation infrastructure, uh, in many ways, sometimes it resembled that the situation in Egypt, but in a few cases, you see very large scale uh, irrigation uh, systems like canals um, that fell under the direct authority of the Ottoman state. So the short answer is that. The Tigris and Euphrates um, created um, a diverse uh, ecological landscape, uh, not just a desert, but involved, included arable lands, grasslands, and wetlands. And if you ask how the Ottoman state exploited all these ecological zones, it really depends on the on the region. And I gave I explained at length only um, uh, the system that the Ottoman state um, devised. In grasslands, and for more details on this, the Ottoman policy in grasslands uh, and other uh, ecological zones, I highly recommend uh, referring back to the book, especially chapters three, four, and five. Yes, uh, I agree, uh, especially uh, that that entire part too, <clears throat> because it, you really discuss well um, what you just uh, described and the establishment of uh, associations or, or groupings and. Uh, the ways that they cr tied uh, tied pastoralists together, uh, but also uh, tied them together under uh, the imperial formation, uh, which I thought was uh, fascinating. And, uh, and also, you you were able to with the wetlands. Uh, I think give us a story about the marshlands of uh, of Iraq uh, that in this period that. Uh, uh, I'm not sure we see uh, enough of. Uh, I just want to highlight that for our, our listeners. Uh, in the so for my next question, uh, I'm thinking about the the crisis that you uh, mentioned in in one of your final chapters. Uh, it's the this man-made creation of an avulsion in the levee that opened a new branch on the Euphrates River at the turn of the 18th century. Uh, I'm interested in if you could explain to our listeners who haven't yet read it, or maybe they have, uh, but you can uh, dissect a little bit here. How did the Ottomans respond 
and how did this major change in the river system, uh, this or this crisis uh, moment of crisis, uh, for you uh, or for this the Ottoman Empire for the people uh, of the alluvial uh, uh, river valley, begin to point to other linkages with famine, disease, and climatic shifts uh, of the period. So this is one of the most important turning points in the history of the lower reaches of the Tigris and Euphrates, and one of the most poorly uh, understood and discussed in the historiography. So to make a long story short, um, sometime in the 1670s, an unnamed farmer uh, created a crevice in the levees or or, or the banks of the Euphrates River um, to irrigate his garden or fields. And that was a common way to uh, practice irrigation uh, in Iraq. You just uh, create a hole um, in the riverbanks, just a controllable one that one you can control, and you got a canal. Uh, and the rest of your job is just to uh, uh, direct that water coming out of the hole or the crevice um, to the direction that you want, so from one location to another. The one that was made in the um, in the 1670s uh, went out of control and over time it started to um, suck in the entire flow of the Euphrates River until the Euphrates entirely changed changed its direction. So the former river channel disappeared and became just a dry riverbed. And the Euphrates started to flow uh, in a new direction through the crevice that this unnamed farmer created. That was a total uh, calamity in the eyes of the Ottoman state. Because, um, well, uh, settlers on the old river channel, all of a sudden, they lost all their source of water and all their fields uh, um, uh, lost uh, the source of water and could not be irrigated irrigated anymore. And also, um, those villages and settlements that happened to stand in the way of the new river channel, all all of a sudden, they were flooded. And you see a total um, uh, decline in, in the annual revenues that the Ottoman state could collect because of that calamity. And just know that this happened in the most, the richest part of Iraq and the Tigris, uh, the richest, richest part of the region uh, irrigated by the Tigris and Euphrates. What, to make matters worse, this calamity happened to coincide with the arrival of a plague uh, in the region uh, that killed more people and created mayhem. Now, in that situation, commonly, and this is not the only time it happens here in this context, normally you see uh, uh, people who want to take the opportunity, take the advantage of the chaos to build their own a source of power and power base and establish their authority and to distance and cut, maybe cut their ties with the Ottoman state to behave more or less like autonomous rulers in this part of the world that is just part of the empire that is just um, uh, no longer um, under the control of Ottoman authorities. And in many ways, Iraq really fell 
off the orbit, the, of, fell off the Ottoman imperial orbit at the time because of the mayhem and the chaos. So you see changes in the Euphrates River, uh, people losing their source of water, others being flooded. You see uh, plague outbreaks at the same time. And also you see a rural rebellion, each tribal confederation trying to stake out uh, a political ter uh, a territory to claim it as its own. This is a very important uh, moment in the history of the region because um, for, for about, say, from the 1670s until 1704, um, no Ottom so the Ottoman Empire would send many uh, governors to go there and to uh, 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 bring the house in order. And that was always impossible, very difficult. Uh, 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 no one could... No one could resettle the uh, the conditions of the region on, in a durable way. So you may, they may, an Ottoman governor could win a war, uh, a battle, but the war itself would still be lost by the Ottomans. And after that, from 1704, you see the dawn of a new era. The Ottoman state hired uh, a really uh, a veteran uh, that was who was educated and raised in the Ottoman palace, the Tukhova palace. His name was Hassan Pasha. Um, if I remember correctly, uh, he was born um, in somewhere in Greece, but his father was uh, uh, Georgian ethnically. I could be wrong, but you can uh, we can refer back to the book just to remember. Um, so, and he had a long service. He served as governor in other parts of the Ottoman Empire until he arrived in Baghdad in 1704, and he is the person who is responsible in many ways. Um, uh, for the establishment of a new, um, for the re for the reassertion of Ottoman authority, but there is a difference. You see a new um, political arrangement uh, from 1704 and the arrival of Hassan Pasha, and that Hassan Pasha would be allowed to serve as governor for about for for the rest of his life, and that was very rare. Never, um, at least, not, I'm not aware of a single governor who was allowed to serve as long uh, for, the, for, the, for his entire life, more, roughly 20 years, until the arrival of Hassan Pasha. Because normally, governors were cha uh, changed and reappointed elsewhere within one or two years, maximum five years. Um, and with that, uh, the longevity of the provincial structure that you have now, that you have a governor, who would serve for the rest of his life, he was confident enough to, uh, to strike roots in the region, to build his own household. In many ways, he established a state within a state that is very, uh, um, uh, in some ways, anticipated the rise of Muhammad Ali in Egypt. Um, the only difference is that that state did not really officially become its own independent state, but this is an early case uh, of um, an ambitious politician, politician who is established what became effectively a state within a state. And from that on, and th that uh, uh, provincial formation, that would it would culminate in 1780 when Istanbul granted the governor and the head of this household to be in charge not only of Baghdad, but also of Basra and Shahr Yuzur. Shahr Yuzur was in Kurdistan.
And the authority of this uh, provincial household extended from Mardin, southeastern Turkey, all the way to the Persian Gulf. That's a lot of territory, and it covers most of the uh, river, river channels that were uh, uh, meaningful for uh, navigation purposes and for irrigation purposes. So what you see is um, two trends happening around the same time, reinforcing each other from the arrival of Hassan Pasha in 1704 until the culmination of his household's power in 1780. One trend is the Ottoman state was trying to extricate itself from this part of the empire because at this time, you see the rise of a new threat that really demanded more attention and more resources from the Ottoman state, and that was Russia. So the Ottoman state was trying to spend less attention and less resources on the Eastern Front to the Western Front. And at the same time, you see uh, uh, another trend, which is uh, a new um, uh, power holder in this part of the world who's saying to Istanbul, guess what? Um, Give me uh, all these privileges that I need. Um, Allow me to serve for the rest of my life. and Allow me to appoint members of my my household to the most important Uh, positions in the provincial administration, and in in return, I'll be able to maintain your interests in this part of the world that you no longer have the capacity uh, uh, to look after. Um, And this deal worked for both. It worked for Istanbul because it provided a reliable um, uh, defense uh, in its eastern frontier, uh, a reliable way to protect its interests, and at least by name, uh, this part of the world was was still uh, an Ottoman territory. And in return, this provincial dynasty was able to get the legitimacy that it obtained from the sanction, the political sanction that it got from Istanbul. And it got the prestige that it could enjoy as more or less the de facto um, uh, ruler uh, uh, of this uh, part of the world. And this is where my book ends. It really ends here because now you're not really talking much about rivers of the Sultan. They're no longer, I mean, by name, yes, it's still by name officially. They're, uh, they're Ottoman rivers, but more or less from uh, in this time period, from 1780 and even before, but that process would culminate in 1780, you're talking about rivers um, in many ways um, managed and uh, administered not from Istanbul, but rather from Baghdad, which is which was the center of this uh, provincial dynasty. So for most issues related to navigation and irrigation and the management of shepherds, all the shots were called by Baghdad and not Istanbul anymore. And this is when uh, the book um, uh, comes to an end. Thank you. And, and I think for those who are familiar uh, with other provincial areas, uh, the Ottoman Empire this period, we see similar things occurring. Uh, and so uh, this case study, I think, is is, is a perfect addition to uh, the historiography. Um, and if I can conclude uh, with a quote from your uh, conclusion, you conclude with, understanding the myriad opportunities and risks that the Tigris and Euphrates presented to early modern societies has significant historiographical implications. 
could you explain how this helps us uh, better understand uh, the changes that occur, particularly during the nation state period? Mm. So the nation state period. Yeah. So I feel, so there are many important lessons um, that we can take out uh, from uh, the story. Um, some of it really purely academic, but others are relevant to this day. And for me, um, the most important lesson or historiographical lesson or historical lesson, um, especially for the purpose of the nation state, is to look at the, the big, big difference between the historical role of the Tigris and Euphrates in the 16th and 17th in the 16th and 17th centuries with their status today. Unfortunately, the Tigris and Euphrates, after World War I, they have been dismembered. And that dismemberment of the river system uh, had been, um, had a major, very negative impacts, uh, not only on the societies of the region, but also on the river system itself. So for example, People in the past, in the 16th century and the 17th century, they took travel from Diyarbakir to uh, the Persian Gulf by water for granted. Um, there were no much, not much um, bureaucratic hassles. Travel was much smoother. It was sometimes dangerous. It has travel had its own inconveniences, but nothing like what we have today. Uh, um, Navigation between Diyarbakir and the Persian Gulf now is impossible in all purposes. Um, and unfortunately, um, so this is just one example, the, the negative impact of the dismemberment of the river basin into different states that don't make any ecological sense. Because for effective management of a river system, um, because a river, a river system is a hydrologic and also an ecological unit. It's a coherent unit. And effective management means you really have to approach it holistically and cooperatively between different, between all stakeholders in the river basin. That has been lost. And to the detriment of people and to, to the detriment of the river system, because now um, all states that share the river channels, they see it really as a zero-sum game. If I don't extract as much as I can from my portion of the river channel, someone else will do. And you see this uh, the race to the bottom in terms of pollution and in terms of damming and the dis further dismember dismemberment of, the, of, the, of a, what should be a unified ecosystem into just separate system and of course this is bad not only for um, um, the wa water quality and also for the river resources for fish um, um, and other things um, so what I tried to say the the one if there's one big point I would like to say um, about why this is really important to pay attention to 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 be better people um, um, in the 21st century and since the uh, nation-state system, the introduction of the nation-state system after World War I, is to say, well, uh, the Tigris and Euphrates uh, now are sources of conflict, unfortunately, like so many other river systems, like the Nile River, 
it's a source of conflict. Ethiopia and Egypt, among other nations, fighting each other, and all because they're both crossed by the same river system, uh, all of which, uh, uh, all of those states want to take the advantage of it. And the same thing with other river systems, uh, like the Mekong River in East Asia and elsewhere. Unfortunately, uh, this is, um, now it's just the stereotypical image of a river system. It's just a, a source of conflict and war. Um, but what I try to show in the book is that it doesn't have to be this way. Um, the, uh, a river system like the Tigris and Euphrates, like the Nile, like the Mekong, they don't have to be a source of, source of conflict. In fact, the Tigris and Euphrates can be an opposite force. They can be forces for unity. They can be forces for economic cohesion and political cohesion and social cohesion and cultural cohesion. And they, I know because they were in the Ottoman period. Um, it was through the Tigris and Euphrates that one state like the Ottoman Empire was able to establish a degree of economic cohesion and exchange between societies of Anatolia, or, uh, Syria, and Iraq in ways that unfortunately you don't see here. And um, I hope this will allow people today to say, well, uh, we're, we're all losing by the status quo. And how about we just um, find, and no one will take everything that they want, uh, but just to come up with an arrangement just to uh, bring life back to uh, a river system in many ways is dead. Uh, so the natural hydrologic cycle of the river to flood uh, in the spring months and to sink low, in many ways it has been so confined and so dismembered, it's no longer a natural river and so polluted, it doesn't have the power to cleanse itself from all the pollution. Um, so everybody is losing, no one is winning, uh, not even the other species. Uh, fish and other birds and other animals that also rely on the river system. And I hope the Ottoman experience of the 16th and 17th century will just provide, um, just will show that uh, another way of managing the river system is possible. And again, I'm not claim I'm not trying to uh, say, well, we want the Ottoman Empire back. No. Um, the Ottoman Empire gone and will never return again. Um, it's possible to maintain, um, still to have Syria, to have Iraq, and to have Turkey, but to come up with an arrangement that allows for allows for a more sustainable and more humane and ecological uh, way of uh, maintaining the river system. One reason is because, as I said, we have a precedent in the Ottoman and the early modern Ottoman period, but also we have a precedent in the modern world. How are the Great Lakes are, are managed in North America between Canada and the United States? The Great Lakes used to be very polluted when you had very similar uh, dynamics and conflicts and tensions between Canada and the United States. Well, it took a lot of effort and a lot of uh, goodwill from both sides, uh, both countries on both sides of the border to come to terms and to uh, create this uh, infrastructure, management infrastructure, that restored the vitality and the health of the Great Lakes uh, to the point that they it's still a fresh water. Uh, the Great Lakes is a fresh water and safe for uh, many ways, uh, uh, safe for human consumption. 
And the same thing, you have a situation in the, uh, many uh, rivers between Mexico and the United States. So let's take the advantage of those countries also that are today still, they have a history of working on those arrangements. And also Europe has its own uh, precedent uh, with the Danube River. Let's talk those, take those as inspiration. But my point is, we don't look, we don't need to look at others. We don't need to look at Europeans and North Americans for inspiration for how to, to come up with a more effective and more sustainable way to manage our water resources from within the region. We have examples, we have good examples. And the early modern Ottoman period is one of those examples that I hope uh, people will look at, uh, but uh, I will not hold my breath that uh, someone in, in maybe the the water ministry in Iraq or uh, in Turkey or Syria will, <laughs> will read my book. But you never know. Maybe this podcast will reach out to them and they will listen and they will uh, take heed of my uh, plea uh, to change course. Well said, and I think uh, just to highlight, you're, you're not you're not speaking about a nostalgia for for Ottoman past, but you're thinking about the example that they set for the ecological uh, processes of the of the Rivine Valley, and uh, how that can be applied to today. Uh, and I love the Great Lakes uh, example, uh, one that shows that with. Uh, uh, with negotiations and and co-management, you can uh, change a lot of things in the system. Um, but to conclude, uh, and we've taken up enough of your time, uh, uh, Faisal, uh, but if you could tell us uh, what you're working on right now and what your next project is, uh, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, so uh, currently what I'm uh, doing is I am looking at my hope is that I will have more time to examine more Ottoman cadastral surveys, a few of which I use for my book. So for my book, I used about 12 cadastral surveys, and I only discussed the details that were most relevant to the Tigris and Euphrates. My hope for my future book um, uh, is to look at more uh, cadastral surveys of more uh, provinces of the eastern frontier, um, and to use them to, to reconstruct the history of Ottoman expansion um, into into the Middle East um, since the early 16th century, and um, I'm and so in particular, I'm not interested only in the details related in them about water, but also I'm very interested in the issue of aridity. So aridity is a major problem today um, and the issue of, of drought. And I am curious to see how the Ottoman state, which evolved in a relatively humid climate uh, in Western Anatolia and Southeastern Europe, how they try to deal with the issue of aridity, extreme aridity, once they ventured into the Middle East because aridity in the Middle East is far more extreme than it is in Western Anatolia and the Southeastern Balkans. The relative to them, um, uh, the Southeastern Anatolia, uh, Western Anatolia and the Southeastern Balkans are humid. They receive enough rainfall for uh, grain cultivation. 
So that's the general idea. The general idea is to look at those cadastral surveys of uh, of the Middle East region more broadly, and uh, and to study them together to reconstruct the environmental history uh, of the of Ottoman expansion uh, into the East, especially with the special with specific uh, focus on the role of aridity and how the Ottoman state tried to deal with the issue of extreme aridity in this part of the world uh, that all of a sudden they found themselves in themselves in uh, by the early 16th century fascinating Faisal uh sounds like a great project and I really look forward to uh seeing it uh in the near future uh and I want to thank you for being on the show today I really enjoyed speaking with you and uh take care thank you so much